This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Islamic studies classrooms have grown significantly over several generations. While once we could only find courses on the tradition in the most prestigious institutions, now Islam classes are taught at small liberal arts colleges, state schools, private universities, and even programs in Islamic theology and law. Teaching Islamic studies in the age of ISIS, Islamophobia, and the internet, edited by Courtney Dorrell, covers approaches, strategies, and topics important for the study of Islam today. Across several chapters, we are introduced to various common dispositions students enter our classes with and how to address them. Many of these opinions are informed by popular stereotypes about Muslims and get reinforced by contemporary events. These moments often require immediate attention in the classroom, a burden most other subjects do not share, And unfortunately, much of teaching about Islam is motivated by unlearning these biases. Throughout our conversation, we explore how to achieve a simple course objective, that Muslims are people and Islam is complicated. We discussed collaboration between junior and senior teachers, previous scholarship of teaching and learning and Islamic studies, cross-cultural virtual exchange, Islamic religious education and European institutions, issues of Islamophobia and violence, questions of patriarchy and gender, remote teaching and online courses in the age of the coronavirus, and self-care as a learning outcome. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Courtney Dorrell, about teaching Islamic studies in the age of ISIS, Islamophobia, and the internet, published with Indiana University Press in 2019. Welcome, Courtney. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Well, as good as can be expected, I guess, right now. <laughs> right, right. Dial that back a little bit. Um, so this is a really great book. I think it's super useful, um, and I think it's perfectly timed uh, in terms of uh, kind of thinking about teaching Islamic studies, uh, the subjects that are important in our contemporary moment. So I think it's going to be a a really valuable uh, contribution overall. Great, thanks. Um, So we always uh, try to start the conversations with learning a little bit about um, our authors, and in this case, uh, editor. 
Um, so could you talk a little bit about what brought you to Islamic studies? Were there particular um, moments or classes or mentors that kind of uh, helped construct the, the subjects you're interested in, the way you uh, tackle, tackle things? Sure. Uh, well, my training was at University of Arizona in their School for Middle East and North African Studies. Um, within that school, they have a breakdown of whether you're going the route of, you know, um, focusing on the Persian language, Turkish, Arabic. And I ended up getting um, really interested in Turkish studies. So I was taking Turkish as my main language and then Ottoman, reading Ottoman as my secondary language and very much focused on the contemporary world in, in Turkey, kind of the, the urban renewal projects that were going on there circa 2010, uh, did my field ethnographic field work in 2013, right around um, when Gezi Park was happening. So that was my formal training. But then after kind of graduating, getting the PhD, I entered the job market. And um, though I was trained at an R1 where research and publications were really um, kind of the main discussion, um, especially for the professors I was working um, with and being mentored by, I was uh, actually interested in going a little slightly different path. Um, I was really interested in finding a job at a small liberal arts college. It's not that I had had any direct experience in my own academic background with small liberal arts schools. I went to a large land-grant university in the Midwest called Purdue University as an undergrad and then moved about two hours away to a, another state school in Indiana, Indiana University. Fantastic programs. Um, but I experienced Wake Forest um, as, as a conference participant when I was a PhD student. And I got invited to that campus in North Carolina um, to present a paper um, about Turkish citizenship um, laws and rights. And I was like just blown away by what occurred on the campus. The students from an undergraduate course actually created the call for the conference. It was part of their class to create the conference, bring in scholars from around the U.S., a few international scholars, and their whole um, fall semester course was about getting this conference planned, inviting the speakers, and running the entire conference. And I was just so blown away. I was so impressed. Um, I loved hearing about what that um, professor was doing with her students um, by way of student-faculty collaborative research, and I was just um, really taken by this way of, of teaching and this style of um, the academic you know, seen. So when I went on the job market, that was something I really wanted to experience myself. I felt like that was something I was, my personality was driven for. And um, I was lucky enough to land a job at a small liberal arts um, school, not quite in North Carolina, but a few hours south um, in South Carolina at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Um, and when you're asked to teach at a small liberal arts college, you're really asked to broaden what you're going to be teaching. So yes, I am trained as a Turkish studies specialist, but really at Wofford, they need someone to teach about the entire Middle East and North Africa. They need you to utilize all of your skills, basically, um, because you're translating everything at more of an introductory level for 
an all undergraduate experience. So um, now being at Wofford, I am the coordinator of their Middle East and North African Studies program. Um, I teach courses on ethnography, the method I used in my dissertation. I'm housed in a religion department. Um, so I also get the ability to kind of explore other ways of seeing um, religious studies. A new course that I'll be teaching this coming fall is about caring for the self, a global guide. And it's about how different cultures and religions have looked at self-care. So this is something quite far removed from what I was trained as a PhD student in, but that's kind of one of the luxuries of being at a small liberal arts institution. You can really um, get innovative in the classroom. And so um, now I kind of see myself more as a as a broader scholar who's focused on the scholarship of teaching and learning more broadly. And yes, I still engage with my Turkish studies community, but um, that's that's less often than I would be engaging with other scholars in the broader field of Middle Eastern studies and Islamic studies. Hmm. That sounds like a really... Um productive kind of environment that you've been in and the uh, ways you can really grow in that that class sounds really amazing. I want to take that <laughs> class. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how this particular uh, project started to form as a book in terms of what was the kind of uh, the initial spark and then what were some of the pieces in terms of uh, then thinking about what are the topics or subjects I want to cover? Who are some people that I might want to get involved with this? How did that all uh, start to come together? Sure. And it really came together the first couple of years I was teaching at Wofford. And I felt like I was really thrown into, okay, this is what it's like to teach Middle Eastern studies and Islamic studies right now. This is um, the challenges of the field. Here's the emotional labor embedded in working with topics that are um, controversial or sensitive. And, you know, it was a lot of struggle just for a new untenured professor to kind of grapple with. And I, I have a really supportive um, collegial university. And we have actually uh, a faculty dining room that everyone pretty much goes and has lunch in. And you can talk about pedagogy in your classes, which is wonderful. Uh, but I was also starting to find that, well, not everybody's dealing with a topic that might change radically depending on what's going on in the geopolitical sphere, right? Not everyone's having to um, make their learning objectives as simple as having your students see Muslims as people, right? So I, I started feeling a little disconnected and feeling like I need a sense of ne a network of people that are also doing this. Um, so I started reaching out to a mentor in the field who was who is um, Richard Martin. May he rest in peace. He's he was um, an, an emeritus professor um, from Emory University um, in Islamic studies at that time, and he really would help me think through how do I address these difficult subjects? Um, you know, as someone who did this for his entire career in the South in Atlanta, um, he was able to kind of talk me through, okay, this is, this is a empathetic, this is a sensitive way to approach this. Because again, when you're an untenured professor, you have so many things going on in your mind thinking about, well, how do I make sure students 
don't feel offended in my classroom? How do I make sure I'm not um, alienating them from the topic? How do I make sure um, they don't feel like I'm going too far and being an apologist on, on the topic? You know, how do I make this work um, while still maintaining my sanity and also doing justice to, to the field. So um, Richard Martin really helped me out so much with that. And in fact, he came to Wofford um, the second year I was teaching here and gave a talk on campus. And he actually titled the talk, um, Teaching Islamic Studies in the Age of ISIS, Islamophobia, and the Internet. And it drew a huge crowd for a small liberal arts campus and a, a ton of interest. And after the talk, we went to a local a local Austrian restaurant called Gerhardt's and just setting down over. Um, actually, I, I know I had schnitzel because I always order their schnitzel there. Um, we just talked about how, how much interest came from this topic. And, and we started talking about the field um, of Islamic studies and how, you know, teaching, you don't always get to focus very much on pedagogy when you're a grad student. Um, and then you're thrown into it when you're when you're on the tenure track or you're lecturing for the first time or you're adjuncting, whatever the case may be, um, you're in it and you you have to draw from what you learned. But there's a whole nother side to 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 pedagogy. And so he's like, you know, maybe there, it's time for another book on Islamic studies pedagogy because he he has been writing on Islamic studies pedagogy um, throughout his career. And he was very supportive of. Um, Brandon Wheeler's book from 2002 on teaching Islam. Um, But he was kind of, you know, throwing this idea around with me. And I'm like, yes, I'd love to take this on. This sounds like it's something that um, would not only help me navigate this field, um, but also give me that support network outside of my own institution. Right. So I started brainstorming who in the field I could contact and then um, Richard Martin also was giving me names of people that he thought would be interested in this because one of the, you know, kind of political sides to an edited volume about pedagogy is how does the field and how does the your academic community respond um, to such uh, such a piece? And and honestly, just frankly speaking, pedagogy is usually seen as something maybe more on the back burner. Some institutions actually might not even count, so to speak, something about pedagogy for someone's tenure file, right? Especially if you're at a, um, a more e- research-grounded um, institution. So I, I really had to be aware of the labor I'm asking of my colleagues in the field and whether or not this is something they felt comfortable contributing to. Um, and and how that labor would we, be recognized at their institution, but not only that, um, thinking about who would feel comfortable um, talking about what's going on in their classroom, because really this book kind of pulls the curtain back, and you get to see where what people are actually doing in the classroom, what resources they're using, um, what approaches they're using, and that can be very personal, right? Uh, People might not always feel comfortable sharing their syllabus um, for a a particular class. So I just wanted to be really cognizant of what I was asking people and make sure everybody knew um, what was going on here. And I got 
really good reactions to so many people in the field, um, very willing to kind of go out there and say, you know, this is exactly what I do. And one of my favorite titles of um, the chapters is Keisha Ali's um, Muslims are people, Islam is complicated. You know, she just put it out there. This is what we are dealing with in the field. Um, because the other side, too, if you're at a, a, a teaching-focused institution, you have great lectures and resources about um, innovative teaching, right? You, you have all of these, you know, the flipped classroom model. You have um, what you can do online. Um, how could you you know, build communitas with your students. But a lot of us in Islamic studies are really working at a very fundamental level saying, you know what, our main course objective is just getting our students to feel connected to the people they're studying and try to untrain them um, and unlearn some of the, unfortunately, Islamophobic prevalences that happen in our media, happen in casual conversations in the United States, and just saying, okay, we're going to take a moment. We have to kind of do some unlearning in our classrooms. Um, and that is the main objective that many of us have. Uh, so I just really appreciated her being one of the main um, female Islamic studies scholars in the United States at Boston University, kind of putting it out there that Yes, the struggle you're having maybe at a small school in the South is the same struggle I'm having with my, you know, what might some people stereotype urban elite students, right? So I thought it was a great way to also show I wanted to be very cognizant of diversifying who contributed as well, like different levels of professors. So you have some um, very prominent tenured full professors here. You also have students, uh, sorry, you also had at the time people that were still completing their PhD. You have women and men almost equally represented as well as uh, I was cognizant of who is a practicing Muslim and who is not. So we have kind of all of that um, diversity involved in this ed edited volume. Um, I think it comes through too, especially with the, some of the global connections, and then uh, you can kind of tell about the experience from some of the authors. Um, I think it worked really well, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kind of the, the framework of the book. Um, so you break it up into three sections, uh, which are called approaches and theories, um, Islamophobia and Islam and violence, and then applications. So what? Uh, you know, what, how is the book designed and structured? And then what did you ask um, each author to produce within their chapters? Yeah. So um, I have to go back to um, my mentor in the field, Richard Martin. After I, I had everyone committed to the edited volume and they've, you know, they've worked through what I was asking of them and decided they were game, they sent me an abstract. And he actually went over those abstracts with me and we decided um, this is kind of a natural flow for the book. So we wanted to break it up so that we had, you know, people who wanted to just look at maybe the theoretical approach. Um, kind of, I would say that's kind of more the very much pertaining to the, the pedagogue, right? That first section, if you're teaching, whether it be Islamic studies or some other topic related to Islamic studies, this is a lot of pedagogical language, right? Like when I'm talking about the virtual exchange, that's 
really speaking to kind of an academic audience. Um, whereas I think part two, Islamophobia and violence, that's something that um, honestly, your average American citizen who just wants to learn a little bit more about Islam, I think that's a fantastic section to just say, okay, well, if you wanted to learn more about Islam and you were kind of wanting to go against some of the rhetoric you might be hearing in the media, this is what the latest scholars are are teaching their students. And I actually had a student at Wofford gift this book to their father. And he was so wonderful. He read the book and then he wrote up a review and he specifically loved that section. And that made me think, okay, that section can speak to others who aren't necessarily teaching this topic, right? They can almost put themselves in the college classroom with that section. And then the last um, is kind of going back to, I mean, that's kind of a hybrid applications. Um, A lot of that, those chapters have really good resources for scholars. So if you go to um, Shanaz Haqqani's chapter on teaching Islam and gender, she gives you a breakdown of what activities to do in your classroom, debates, dialogues. Uh, She also talks about what it's like if you're, she's a, a Muslim American, and she also talks about what it's like teaching other Muslim Americans in the U.S. classroom and, and how to confront that because they're often um, struggling with this dual identity of being not only American, but also Muslim and trying to defend their faith against Islamophobia. And so kind of seeing how she's had to deal with that in her classroom and how she reacts to that. Um, And she just gives a ton of films and blogs that you can use. So I always feel like in that section, if I were a graduate student who was going to go out into the market and have to produce a syllabus on an intro to Islam course or um, a course that has a section on Islam, I would probably go to the application section and just pull from those resources given to me because they've all been vetted for basically an undergraduate classroom. Yeah, I I remember when I first started teaching, trying to <laughs> figure these things out. And uh, yeah, and I remember looking through uh, Wheeler's edited collection, which um, I think you mentioned that um, you kind of see this as a, as a complementary piece. And I, I looked back at it as well. And um, the way that one is structured is very different. It's very um, more like thematic. It's almost like, what do we want to do if we're talking about Sufism or uh, Muslim Americans or, uh, you know, this kind of topic or that kind of topic? And I think the way this one's structured really helps in thinking about these um, perhaps in more synthesized ways in the sense that um, Haqqani's essay does a really good job of kind of helping you think about how, how can gender be something that allows you to illuminate broader topics within Islamic studies rather than let's have a day on Muslim women. Um, so I think, I think it's really, uh, it's a, you did a great job in kind of piecing these all together and, and, and helping authors think about their, uh, their topics in really interesting ways. Well, thank you. I will say what I also like about um, kind of the, the dialogue and discussion that's going on, if you look at all the chapters put together, 
you see, you know, there's not one size fits all in an intro to Islam course. Um, and, or if you're, if you're doing an interdisciplinary thematic course, right. That maybe has politics, geopolitics, gender, um, poverty, anthropology, sociology, all kind of embedded within it. Um, and one of the interesting points is, you know, we have some of our authors saying, okay, here's how you can look at some of maybe the predominant Islamophobic tropes that your students might come into the classroom with and unpack them within the classroom. And then you have this totally other approach, which is really novel and interesting, where Todd Green from Luther College says, well, why don't we take out the whole conversation of Islamophobia out of an intro Islam class and allow an intro Islam class to be an intro religion class, right? We don't often ask an intro to Christianity scholar to talk and unpack the history of, you know, maybe how Christianity was utilized by Nazis, right? We don't, we just take out some of the, the contemporary politicized items within an intro Islam class. And he is, asking people to maybe consider having an entire course just on Islamophobia, right? Where you say, okay, let's take that and make it a class on its own and then allow our Islamic studies scholars to teach, you know, theology, Islamic law. Um, So I really like kind of these varied and, you know, different approaches even within the edited volume. Now, um, your uh, co-authored essay is discussing what you, you mentioned earlier, this idea of virtual exchange in the classroom. Um, so this might be one to, to kind of look at a little more closely. Can you talk a little bit about how this, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you call it an assignment or activity, uh, how did it come about, how did it work, and how do you think others could uh, benefit in their own classrooms with this type of activity? Right. So this came about, I had a a friend in the field who was teaching at Al-Azhar University in Cairo, Egypt. And she had, uh, you know, we'd met up at conferences. We we discussed kind of what we taught. Um, We both were teaching predominantly undergraduate students. And we were both teaching at institutions where it was pretty unlikely, honestly speaking, that the students would be going that her students would be going to the United States and that my students would ever vis- visit Egypt or m- maybe any area of the MENA region. Not to say that we don't get students that go to the MENA region, but it's not the most popular destination. And in her case, um, it was really a socioeconomic issue where a lot of her students weren't going to be able to um, go spend a semester abroad in the United States. So we kind of decided, well, wouldn't it be great if we could kind of connect them kind of as peers so that they could be agents of their own culture and religion and kind of flip the classroom in a way where we're not just giving them readings about the religion and the the space that we're talking about, but we're allowing them to engage with other college students from that region. So she was, she wanted her students to meet Christians in the United States. And I wanted my students to meet Muslims in the MENA region. So to do this, um, initially, we just had kind of a very informal agreement that we would utilize Facebook and create a private Facebook page and allow our students to kind of go on and, you know, meet one another. We would maybe have a Skype. And we did this for the first year. And we 
we're getting a lot of great feedback from the students that they really enjoyed that particular, those segments of the class. And I was using it in a course um, for all incoming students, um, and it was a course called Exploring the Middle East. So after the first initial informal year, we ended up getting a grant from the Stevens Initiative um, that was actually specifically for virtual classrooms. And they gave us a grant for two years to kind of um, expand our, our virtual um, exchange. And so we were able to get funds to allow um, more students at Al-Azhar and more of my colleagues at Wofford to engage with this type of learning. And so then it expanded to students that were taking uh, political science classes, English classes, and we also expanded our partnership with another school, the American University of Beirut. So um, we did that expanded virtual exchange for two additional years. Um, and that's where I really focused the chapter on explaining um, what kind of platforms we use because now we added WordPress, um, we used YouTube, we had one class create a virtual textbook. We had an online library guide for this virtual exchange. Um, and, and right now, I think what's interesting when I think about this chapter is how this might be the way to go post-COVID-19, when even if you had the ability to study abroad, if socioeconomics or, you know, um, stereotypes of certain regions of the world weren't an issue, we're in a situation where we're not sure if students will be able to study abroad in the fall. We're not sure when that will start back up. We're not sure even when it gets back up, who's going to feel comfortable doing that. And so the one thing that that experience taught me is you can virtually build connections and have students learn from one another, even if it's not in a immersive study abroad experience. Yeah, that's a good idea, and that might be necessary for some time here. Um, another um, kind of global connection in the book is um, talking about teaching Islamic studies in other European countries. And, you know, you've talked about your experience uh, in a lot of American universities and colleges. And I'm wondering if you tell us a little bit about um, what are some of the similarities and differences between uh, the North American context and the European teaching context. Right. So Moaz Kalafoy, um, he wrote chapter four, Islamic Religious Education and Critical Thought in European Plural Societies. Um, and he's he's this he has this really awesome appointment at the University of Tübingen. Um, actually, in Germany right now, uh, several of their large state schools not only teach a religious studies version of Islam, but they are starting to also have Islamic theology centers. So he is a, a, a professor in one of these new Islamic theology centers. Um, and so this means his students are coming to his university and studying um, kind of like if, if, if I were to compare it to the United States, it's like someone going to seminary. Right. If you're Christian and you're you're seeking out a seminary to learn a practical side of that religious tradition, they're able to now do this in in tubing in Germany. And so um, we ended up meeting when I was in tubing and doing some research. 
And he invited me to come back another summer and actually teach at the University of Tübingen for one of their summer courses. And um, so I got to see firsthand what it's like to, to be a professor of Islamic studies as a practitioner and teaching students who are practicing Muslims who are going there um, and viewing it as their kind of their religious profession. Many that graduated from his program, they have a bachelor's and MA at this at this moment in time, were going on to be Islamic chaplains or to work in a political field or nonprofit in Germany. Um, so it was just really fascinating to see that approach of this European government recognizing the need for um, a religious theological um, seminary approach to Islam. Because if you look at the United States and you, and you think about, do we have, you know, Islamic theology centers in this country? We have very few. That's the answer. Um, maybe two I can think of off the top of my head. Um, most practicing Muslims will go the route of getting their PhD in Islamic studies, even though it's more of a secular way of going about studying their religion because of the lack of Islamic theology centers. So in that chapter, he's really talking about that emergence of Islamic theology centers in Europe. Um, now, th there's, there's lots of uh, chapters we could, we could go through in each one, um, but uh, many of them you're kind of um, bringing into the conversation here and the, the, the middle section of the book um, you've already discussed a little bit is about uh, ideas about Islamophobia and then ideas about um, the relationship between Islam and violence, um, which is a theme that comes through the book is that this is, this is the kind of stereotype that many students uh, come to our classrooms with already. Um, so what, what are some of the approaches to tackle these difficult subjects um, in the classroom, and then how might we uh, frame them in a way that we can get at, at broader issues in the study of Islam or the study of religion? Right. So in chapter seven, we have um, a, middle, a Middle Eastern and North African studies librarian from University of Urbana-Champaign, Leila Hussein um, Mustafa, who's actually saying, if you want to approach the topic of Islam and violence, that is actually going beyond the confines of just a religious studies classroom, right? You might want to partner up and pair up and take more of an interdisciplinary approach. So she outlines in her chapter, you know, how that can be done and how allowing different voices and different expertise to be in the classroom can kind of be a lesson in and of itself for students to say, okay, there's many ways to approach this topic. And, um, Team teaching can also allow you to create just a more problematized version of, you know, controversial issues or sensitive events. And I actually think this is a brilliant idea for anyone that is able to do this at their institution. Um, I know sometimes it can be a, a question of, um, you know, finances and is the program available. But I'm thinking at Wofford, after I read her chapter, we have what's called living learning communities. And it's not that you co-teach with another scholar one class, but two different professors can kind of combine two classes. So you have the same students in each class. Um, so you could combine classrooms at certain points. You could go on field trips together. 
And that's an area that I think I could utilize this, perhaps pairing up with a political science professor or even a psychology professor to approach questions students might have that I really wasn't trained at answering, right? There's a lot of times, um, you know, my field isn't um, political science. It isn't political Islam. But I might get a lot of questions from students about that topic because that's what they're hearing about. That's what they're coming to the classroom with. It would be really awesome to have a scholar in a different field that could maybe talk about, well, what's the psychological effects of someone that goes the route of um, becoming a terrorist? How is that universal in different cultures? And, and what's the psychological makeup of that situation? Or rather, kind of what's the political, geopolitical situation of why certain populations that are vulnerable might at, kind of fall to or end up associating with certain um, terrorist organization? What's the geopolitical reality of how that came about? Honestly, that's not something I was trained in, in, in my background. So it would be really awesome to have another professor there from a different discipline that kind of, that can kind of help bolster those questions and maybe show the question from a more comparative approach. So it's not just about the Islam and violence. It's about kind of more of a global, what is, what is, what is it about certain religions and violence, right? To open that question up a little bit more. Um, now, um, there, there's one chapter, um, by, by Phil Doral that, uh, I think is really helpful in thinking about, uh, the various, perhaps uh, kind of positionalities that students come to. He kind of synthesizes this and, and, and kind of categorizes in different ways. He talks about five frame, frameworks. Um, and it seems to be uh, themes that, that come up over and over again throughout the, the, many, the many chapters in the volume as a whole. Um, so he talks about um, issues of violence, uh, patriarchy, politics, foreign policy, and national identity. And how um, if a student ends up in your your class who's perhaps not a religious studies or Islamic studies major, um, they they're they're probably um, implicitly uh, thinking about Islam in one of these ways. Um, and I, I thought this was a really um, useful chapter, um, especially like if you know thinking about people that are coming to the subject uh, either you know from a, you know. Buddhism or Christianity or somebody who has to teach a world religions class, perhaps, uh, or even graduate students who, ha who don't have a lot of teaching experience. Um, this seemed to, to, to kind of help, uh, think about what, what, uh, path you might want to explore, uh, to help students kind of open up their, their framework. Um, if they're kind of situated in one of these, um, I'm wondering if you could maybe just give us a little bit of an idea of what, uh, you know, you've talked about some of these, these ideas about violence and a little bit about uh, perhaps uh, foreign policy or politics. Um, but what, what are these kind of frameworks uh, doing in the classroom, I guess? Yeah. So Phil's um, my partner in life and my partner here at Wofford, and he um, teaches a lot of, he, he teaches the intro to Islam course here at Wofford. And it's a very popular course. He teaches about 100 undergrads each year. And when he wrote this chapter, he had really um, been at this for about five years. And he was coming to terms with, okay, 
here are the questions my students seem to always be asking when they come into this class, right? And I think there's a couple approaches you could take. One is the, um, you know, Todd Green approach, which is as an Islamic studies scholar, you don't have to, you shouldn't have to contend with this. You could go another way. Um, but we don't have an Islamophobia course um, at Wofford. And we, we, we really need to deal with these questions in the intro Islam class. So he felt um, that after about five years of teaching this class, he could synthesize the top five questions students usually um, wanted to know about Islam. And he has those on page 178. And I'll just kind of go through those. Um, one was for religion and violence, is Islam violent? For religion and politics, does Islam want to dominate non-Muslim society or politics? Uh, for religion and patriarchy, does Islam oppress women? Uh, for, for religion and foreign policy, who are the terrorists such as ISIS and where do they come from? And five, for religion and national identity, is, is Islam a threat to the United States? And so instead of um, ignoring these questions, he ended up kind of taking these questions head on and saying, this is how he's going to create and outline his entire intro Islam course. And so he gives then in the chapter examples of what texts and what activities he uses to kind of respond to those questions. And I will say we have a lot of conversations about the emotional labor that taking on these questions um, produces in instructors. And um, so it's not to say this is easy. And I think this is also where you have to be um, honest and say uh, one of the reasons why he feels comfortable doing this is because he himself, um, and he talks about this, he's non-Muslim and he's not, um, he's, he, he's not veiling. He, he doesn't feel vulnerable um, when he's asked to answer these questions. And that that's a like who speaks for Islam and who feels comfortable talking about these things, I think is really an important question when you think about how these different authors approach their classrooms, thinking about what kind of privileges do they have? Are they a white male, non-practicing Muslim? Are they a veiled female Muslim? So what are you projecting in front of your classroom and what other issues are you having to deal with just in your own identity as as a person and as a scholar. So he always we we have a lot of conversations about that. And that would actually be something as a follow-up study I would love to to explore more. How does our identities affect how we end up approaching the subjects that we're asked to teach? Yeah, I think that certainly uh comes across both in racial identities and gender identities. And uh, yeah, I think it, that would be an interesting way to, to, to tackle this. Um, one of the, one of the uh, final chapters you have in the book um, is about teaching online courses. And um, there's some, some, some really kind of effective strategies for teaching online here. Um, and it's a very helpful chapter. Um, and now that we're in this kind of crisis moment where uh, lots of people Pretty much everyone is uh, remote teaching. Um, many of these people are are unprepared or inexperienced for online teaching. Um, so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about perhaps um, what what kind of uh, is presented in the book, but then also what maybe you've been thinking about recently in terms of uh, teaching Islam online uh, in this kind of crisis moment. Right. Yeah, so Lyndall Herman wrote the chapter 13 on making Islamic studies interactive and approachable. 
And what I love about this is she kind of details what she did in her online courses. Um, and she creates an activity called diary entries, which is something that the student shares privately with the instructor. And it's a way for them to build a dialogue and approach, you know, maybe sensitive issues they might not feel comfortable putting up on a you know, a public blog or even a classroom blog where their fellow students can actually see what they're saying. Um, she has a great literature review section where you can get um, great resources on how to do reflective teaching in an online asynchronous, asynchronous fashion. And, um, you know, what I love about this, she also tells you how you could do it in a three or five week model, or if you have a 16 week semester model, which, um, you know, right now, so many conversations about how colleges will proceed in the fall. Will we be face-to-face? Um, I know some colleges are asking their professors to break up their semester, and the students, I think this is at Beloit College, they've announced that they're going to have students in one semester take two classes instead of four for about seven weeks, and then the other two classes will be another seven-week um, model. So, I mean, I never thought I'd be asked to do something like that, but uh, this is a reality I might be facing. So I might be going back to her chapter and kind of really looking at, okay, how do you produce a course that's that's only three to five weeks, right? As opposed to a 16-week semester course. Um, I love that she was very honest and open that she was doing her online teaching asynchronous, um, which means the student can do it at their own pace. And I think as I've kind of read, uh, you know, Chronicle, Inside Higher Ed, um, different Facebook posts about how to, you know, triage teach in this moment, how to just get your class up online and, and do distance learning, even if you're not an expert. It seems like one of the trends that keeps coming up is how important asynchronous opportunities are for students. Um, and I think when I think about my own classes, um, in my own situation, right? I have a, I actually have a two and a half year old who now doesn't have daycare, right? So I've been asked to, you know, I need to keep teaching. I need to get my students over this finish line, get them through the course, but I don't have the village and the support network that I had pre-COVID-19. It's just not part of my reality. I'm having, you know, to, to co-parent break up time with my partner, you know, he has a three hour shift where he's with the toddler and then I have a three hour shift. And so it became very clear to me that I'm not going to be able to do Zoom synchronous, you know, lectures. I'm not going to be able to hold these discussions um, even in a in a virtual synchronous fashion. So her chapter and outlining here's how you can do asynchronous is very helpful. And I'm finding that for my for my classes, that was kind of the only way I could go. Um, but the feedback I'm getting is, you know, students, you know, they're living in very different situations, right? Their home once was Wofford College, in a, most likely in a dorm at a small liberal arts college. It's usually very residential. And now all of a sudden, they've been asked to live with, you know, family members. They're living off campus. Their home has been displaced from them as they knew it. Um, while they were on campus. And so they might be sharing, we're finding they might be sharing, you know, their laptop with other family members that also need to use it for maybe K through 12 learning that's now online. Um, they might not have, they might have internet, but they might not have the bandwidth to have internet exactly at the time. 
I had class on campus, they might be an international student, right? I have one student that's um, an international student, so they're not able to sync themselves with that, you know, South Carolina timeframe. So this push for asynchronous activities, um, I think, is really important to think about from a diversity and inclusion um, approach. But that is also labor, right? Like that was a lot of labor to, to reconfigure my class that's usually face-to-face to put it up online and try to honor um, what we wanted to do in that semester. Um, Courtney, this is a, a great book. Um, I, I think it's going to be really valuable. Uh, and un- unfortunately, in terms of some of the the teaching and unlearning that it's saying we need to do, uh, I think that's probably going to be a theme that's going to be important for a long time. Um, so I guess good in the sense that your book, book will still be uh, important for uh, the, 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 the seemingly uh, long future. Um, I'm wondering if you could take a moment to just um, think about the process of editing um, I'm sure some listeners are people that have their own ideas about editing books and, um, yeah, what, 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 what did you learn? How, how do we do it? Well, what are some best practices that you, you think you've discovered? Yeah. Um, well, one thing that really helped was, um, asking all of the authors to submit their chapters before I approached the press. Um, I think that's specific, like specifically very important if you're doing an edited volume because you're relying on so many other people and everybody has very varied life situations, different schedules. And so um, to put in a proposal um, of just abstracts and just saying, okay, we're going to have these produced um, is very different than actually having all of the chapters in hand. So uh, for an edited volume, I found it really helpful to, to have very clear, fairly strict, you know, deadlines. Um, and I actually let everybody know from the get-go, I'm planning on approaching the presses, but I want to have the chapters in so I can say we're, we're good to go to the press. Um, and I think it's, it's, for me, they had to put a lot of trust in me because they were giving me the chapter before I had a contract. And so that was something, you know, I was kind of, that's a big ask. Um, they're putting in labor and they're, they're hoping that I do follow through. Um, but it was very helpful to have those chapters in hand and be able to go to the press and say, okay, we have, you know, um, at the time, I think it was like one chapter shy and then after they reviewed the proposal and, the, and then, they, then they sent out the chapters for review, they said, okay, we need this other subject that is lacking. So I did have to go, go back and then try to find someone to fit that subject matter. And luckily I was able to do that. But for the most part, um, it was really helpful to have all of the chapters in a rough draft form um, before approaching the press. And then of course, after the press um, said that they wanted to move forward with it, you know, then the press asked that each chapter, um, you know, have some edits. So each author had to commit to doing those edits. And I was really thankful. I have a group of stellar 
stellar writers here that were so good about deadlines because it can be hard to um, to get everyone on the same page, but everybody in this book really pulled together and pulled through. And um, we, we met our deadline and we were able to get it to press, um, which was great. But, you know, I think that's, you know, very specific to an edited volume um, where you're working with so many different authors. Um, maybe not necessarily the case. I know many people say for a monograph, you can kind of have two chapters done and then approach the press. Um, but with this, I, f- I found it helpful to have all the chapters in hand. Now, um, Courtney, we'd love to hear what uh, what else you're working on, things that you have uh, in the pipeline. Well, um, the project that I'm probably most passionate about right now, it's kind of coming from this discussion of teaching Islamic studies. Um, and it's really about the emotional labor aspect of teaching controversial topics. That's kind of the conversation I've been um, really involved in at, in the last couple of years. And I, to the point where I've started to implement what I call self-care pedagogy in my classes um, to honor the fact that if I'm teaching a difficult topic, I'm also, I'm adding more emotional labor to my load, but I'm also asking my students to do that as well, right? I'm asking them to think through some pretty difficult topics, some pretty, you know, weighty weighty material. And so um, I've been trying out this, this idea of adding in um, what I call self-care days where I'm, I say, take time that we normally would have had discussion or we would have had um, a reading assignment due and care for yourself, rejuvenate yourself. Um, and we read a lot on kind of unpacking the stereotypes embedded in that term, because there can be a lot of, um, capitalist utilizations of self-care um, in kind of, you know, self-care should only be for the people that can afford the, the manicures and the spa treatments. Um, no, we're actually trying to turn it on its head and say, what if self-care was a human right? What if everyone had the right to have self-care? Um, so that's something I've been collecting data. I have IRB to see how students respond to that pedagogical style. And it's been really interesting to hear how students are utilizing self-care as they're sheltering in and distance learning um, now in these COVID-19 days. So um, that's probably the project I'm most passionate about right now. Oh, that sounds great. (laughs) We definitely need to have uh, self-care and one that's not uh, rooted in capitalist practices. So, Um, well, Courtney, thanks for making the time to talk about this wonderful book of yours. Great. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Courtney Dorrell about teaching Islamic studies in the age of ISIS, Islamophobia, and the internet, published with Indiana University Press in 2019. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Please stay safe, and we hope you'll listen again.